these like light themes are throughout Paul's work. So all that material is rich for getting through every day of life. You know, the art is always there to reflect back. So I think that's where I sit in terms of knowing the past and studying the past, but as, as a way to support the present so that we can build the future. piece conversations about the work behind the work with diverse artists from all over the globe my name is ruby josephine smith and not only am i the creator and host of this podcast i am a choreographer and contemporary dance artist This is a podcast in process about process. I am not only fascinated by the creative process itself, but how to have better and more meaningful conversations about it with artists of different cultures, backgrounds, and mediums. Join me in digging deep into what it is that drives a person to make art. Today's conversation is a very special one to me as a dancer and lifelong student of modern dance history. I truly felt like I was speaking with someone who is in the midst of creating an important part of this history, while thoughtfully navigating our present. Michael Novak became only the second artistic director in the history of the Paul Taylor Dance Foundation in September 2018, upon the death of the founding artistic director Paul Taylor himself the previous month. Michael was a performing member of the Paul Taylor Dance Company from 2010 to 2019. Raised in Illinois, Michael began studying dance at age 10. At 12, he developed a severe speech impediment that required intensive therapy, and during this time, dance became a liberating and vital force for self-expression. In 2001, he was offered a presidential scholarship to attend the University of the Arts in Philadelphia to pursue training in jazz and ballet. The following year, he undertook an apprenticeship at the Pennsylvania Academy of Ballet Society. Michael studied at Columbia's School of General Studies, where he became immersed in the study of dance history, which ignited his devotion to modern dance. He has since danced with Gibney Dance and the Daniel Gortzman Dance Company, studied at Springboard Dance Montreal, and has performed works by Bill T. Jones, Vaslav Nijinsky, and Stephen Petronio. Since joining the Paul Taylor Dance Company, he has danced 56 roles in 50 Taylor dances, 13 of which were made on him. In announcing Michael's appointment as artistic director designate in March 2018, Paul Taylor said, Michael has mastered our repertory and steeped himself in dance history. He understands the need to nurture the past, present, and future of modern dance. You can find out more about the Paul Taylor Dance Company at www.ptamd.org and on Instagram at Paul Taylor Dance. And you can also follow Michael Novak on Instagram at Michael Novak PTAMD. In this conversation, Michael talks about his creative background, how dance and drama became languages for him, and his path to where he is today as artistic director of a world-renowned company. He also speaks about his own unique creative calling within his work, as well as how he believes in dance as a way of supporting cultural healing, now during a pandemic, and moving forward into a more connected, globalized future. Michael has such a generous and thoughtful way of speaking about dance and the arts, and it really inspires nothing but curiosity and creative confidence as a listener. I hope this conversation brings you that and more. Here is my conversation with Michael Novak. 
Michael, thank you so much for being here on Process Peace today. It is a joy to be speaking with you and meet you. Of course. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and talk all things dance and tailor and future. Yes. Yeah, it's a really interesting time to be talking, I think. So I'm really excited to see where this goes and hear more about your work. I like to, before we get into your current work, I like to go back into your past um, artistic life. And I always start with the same question, which is what is your first memory of creating something? My first memory of creating something was, I had to have been maybe five or six years old, maybe a little bit older, but I remember going over to um, a friend's house and we were in her basement. And I believe, um, we choreographed a dance to a new kids on the block song. Um, Amazing. It showed my age, but um, <laughs> they had come out with the hit that we, and I just remember choreographing and not knowing at all what we were doing. And I remember dancing a lot and I remember sweating um, and we had carpet burns because um, we kept like oh, jumping and spinning and stuff like that. Um, but that was my first like real memory of creating something from nothing and mm. not really knowing where that impulse was coming from yeah was yeah. your creative life always dance related or were you ever doing any other kind of artistic things at the same time i've been i'm creative period um i would say that throughout my life um definitely the performing arts in general not just dance but musical theater i actually did musical theater for a while when i was in high school um both on stage and uh on specific crews working backstage um mm. like anything that's creating something for people to enjoy i've had a passion for um i've also waited on tables which i actually think is an incredibly creative occupation um in terms of being able to manage people manage mm -hmm. um situations multitasking um, but menu design layout how to um, present specials to different groups like I actually think it's a very creative job or it can be yeah and then also kind of performative if you're waiting yes. on tables yeah I love that you bring that up I've never had anyone talk about that before but I also waited tables alongside dance and I it really I think improved my social skills as a because in, in dance you know you can be an introvert and still perform um, but waiting tables definitely forces you out of that box no, I learned, I, I, the phrase that I keep coming back to, you know, as I was a dancer and I was trying to figure out like, what is my next, what is my next journey post-performing career before I became artistic director? The phrase I kept coming back to was curating aesthetic experience. Mm -hmm. And that can happen in a restaurant, you know, as a server, as a host, um, it can happen as a performer. I also worked in window design and displays mm -hmm. when I first moved to New York. So I did um, a lot of the window installations for um, Henry Bindel, for Mac, for all the Estee Lauder affiliates, um, oh, yeah. Glass. I mean, like it was so it, it, that was also another thing of like, how do you how do you amplify a product through an experience? So like it's not just a handbag. Mm. But like, what are what is the experience that the buyer is having before they get to the handbag and then they buy it? Um, yeah. What is the music they're listening to? How is the lighting? How is it laid out? Um, like all of these different elements come together to create a very profound, hopefully, you know, unique experience to purchase a product, whether that product is food or an right. like article of clothing or a show, like right. tickets yeah. to see a performance. Um, the journey really starts even before you've left your house in terms of like 
the phone call yeah. you make to get the tickets or the website you go to to buy them or the social media accounts you track. Like it all starts before that moment. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I've never thought about it in that way, but it's a really good skill to have, especially as an artistic director, I can imagine. It's working out right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I want to go back a little bit to your dance history before we yeah. dive into all of that. Um, and I, it's a really common story that I've heard you tell in different interviews. Um, and it's, I think it's quite poetic kind of as an entry into dance. Um, the fact that you developed a stutter when you were 12 and were unable to speak for a period of time. And you've often said that dance was a way um, of expressing yourself during that period. And I'm really fascinated by dance as language. I think that's mm. beautiful. And so I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about that, how, how dance became a language for you at that time. Definitely, that's a great question. So I started dancing regularly around age 10 or so, mm. um, doing mostly jazz and tap. Um, and I was good at it and I enjoyed it. I had tried a lot of other physical activities like karate and gymnastics and a lot of sports. And I, I, I think there wasn't a creative element in it. And I think that's kind of why I was like, oh, this is fun, but it's not meaty in the way that I was looking for. And I think dance was like hard. It was physically challenging. It was exciting, but it was also creative. And when my stutter started to develop and there's different types of stutters and the stutter mm -hmm. I had was called a block, which basically means that you can't get the word out. Uh, right. It just gets stuck kind of in your throat and there's a lot of tension within your mouth and jaw. And it becomes very difficult to push through a block. Mm -hmm. Very easy to just stop talking. Yeah. Or at least me, it was. And I, so much energy was going into trying to get words out and it was so exhausting. I just stopped talking mm -hmm. and dance became the only way I could physically release, I think that tension that I was holding yeah. on to and express myself. And I could smile, I could be dark and intense, you know, I could kind of act, but it didn't require talking. So dance then kind of became my crutch a little bit or like my tool to connect with myself and kind of forget the bullying and the not being able to talk and trying to fit in all that stuff. Like dance became the safe space. Yeah. Um, and then through working with a speech pathologist um, who specializes in stuttering specifically, we worked through a variety of therapy techniques, um, both uh, verbal and mental as well about how mm -hmm. to kind of swim through language and use words and transitions to be able to speak. So over years, I obviously regained my ability to speak relatively fluently. I still stutter. I just... Yeah can navigate it with an ease that I couldn't when I was a kid. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you still find that there are certain things in dance that you're able to say that you're not able to say with words? Does that kind of continue through your performance? Definitely. I think one of the things I love about the Paul Taylor repertory is that it's very rooted in gesture. It's one of the mm -hmm. things that drew me to Paul's language is that it is very gestural and we can get to like my dance education a bit later on, but I had studied a specific, um, a, a, there's a specific historian who studied gesture and gesture as a mode of expression mm -hmm. named Francois Delsart. 
and from the 18th century. And I, I loved what he was talking about, how gesture really says a lot. And if you know these certain cues and you can start to, if you study it, you start to recognize when something's reading is true or reading is slightly off and you can't quite mm-hmm. put your finger on it. There's some intuitive perception that he tried to articulate um, within his work. And Paul unknowingly does that as well. And gesture becomes very important for Paul. So it's not just executing something. There's an intention behind it. Yeah. And that for me is where the dance as language comes in for me is what is the emotional intent behind something? Cause we can all do a grand jeté. Right. In a bajillion different ways. And it can all mean something different. So what is the artist choosing as that yeah. intention to make that grand jeté? Is it excitement? Is it escape? Is it attack? You know, like there's all these different ways that you can approach movement and I think how you're thinking of language or how you're thinking of emotion can dictate that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. I saw that name mentioned, Francois Delzart, and I was fascinated and instantly started researching him because I had never heard of him before, but it sounded really interesting. And I, I love that. I also am really attracted to the use of gesture in, in work. And I think it is that emotional just kind of connectedness that we all have mm-hmm. um and I was also interested to see that you did musical theater in high school that's something I did a lot as well um I saw Phantom of the Opera was one of your favorites I went it was the first really, musical I ever saw really I went yeah. through a very intense obsession with Phantom of the Opera I think at the age of 12 um but it's that emotional drama that really sucks you in and I think even if my work maybe isn't as dramatic as Phantom of the Opera is now, um, there's still that element of really like deep emotion coming from somewhere. Um, yeah, so I, I was just interested kind of how, if musical theater has kind of continued to have an influence. It definitely has. I think my, so I saw the first national tour of Phantom of the Opera. I believe I must've been, I think Phantom came out in 1988. So I was a, probably seven or eight years old. It was the first musical I ever Amazing. saw. And I remember, um, I remember we, I don't know how we got orchestra seats, but we did. And when the chandelier, for those of the people who are tuning in who know the show or don't know the show, there's a moment where the chandelier comes crashing down. It's very dramatic. And we were underneath the chandelier and you're a kid and you see this giant chandelier that you think is gonna crash on you and it doesn't and it like yeah. crashes onto the stage. It's very dramatic. But that sense of the theater being a space where magic happens that bound like what is normal or what is real just starts to kind of disappear and i think that experience of of knowing that when you step into a theatrical experience you're kind of opening yourself up to the unknown and you're not in control of that journey and you're all as an audience kind of giving up your ability to control and you're letting the art guide you through that experience and it can go in any number of ways. And I think that certainly translated to my love of Paul Taylor's work because his work is incredibly theatrical in the sense that his collaborators, Santa Laquasto and Jennifer Tipton, William Ivy Long, uh, you, you, you have these artists who design for theater as well. So mm-hmm. the worlds that they create, um, even Alex Katz and like a lot of the visual artists that Paul collaborated with, they create these worlds that as a viewer, you're definitely, this, this is a, that you are in a different space. 
Yes. You are being transformed into this, this world. But as a dancer in Paul's works, there are certain works that I don't know how to describe it other than they happen to you, hmm. that the world is so complete and all these different theatrical elements come together. And it, it's, there, it's, very, it's a very emotional experience as a performer when all those things come together. Um, and it doesn't have to be dramatic. You know, sometimes it can be incredibly tender and romantic, but that love of theatricality as a kid um, and the theater experience certainly translates to my love of dance, ballet, modern, musical theater, opera. Um, Beautiful. I love that idea of it happening to you. I think that's something that happens in the creative process in general when you're really inside of it and when you find something that really resonates, it just kind of envelops you i'm doing all these gestures to describe it because it's hard to put into words yeah there's a there's a i think with this experience right now in terms of covid has really illuminated for myself certainly a lot of educators and directors that i've been talking to is an artist is how much performing arts is an is an energetic exchange between the artist and the audience and it really is you're you are feeding off of each other and as much as we've innovated for film and how to bring dance to film and create unique digital assets and as dynamic and as highly curated as they can be, the, the live element in person to person performing is there's something else that's there. Yeah. And it's intangible and we can call it any number of things, energy, magic, weirdness, <laughs> you know, but there right, is, a, yeah. there is a thing there. Yeah. Um, that I think we're all itching to be able to get back Absolutely. to. Yeah, I'm excited to hear more about what you've been doing kind of with these COVID um, limitations, but I want to get into that later. I, it, it's very clear that, you know, performance has been in you from a very young age, yeah. but I thought it was really interesting to see that, um, I believe it was when you were at the Pennsylvania um, Academy, Academy of Ballet, mm-hmm. yeah, that you um, started to develop really bad shin splints and were unable to dance for a while. And I'm I'm always fascinated by this fact of people having being forced to stop what's very defining for them and then coming back to it. I think it creates this kind of change in the process and maybe kind of realignment of your path. Um, And so I'm just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, So I started developing shin splints um, when I when I went to the University of the Arts right after high school. I had no ballet training. I was very jazz and tap heavy. And I recognized if I wanted to be more marketable as an artist, I needed to get my ballet training up to the level that jazz and tap were at, mm-hmm. which kind of meant like a crash course in yeah. Vaganova and Chiquetti, <laughs> like figure it all out. And I started to develop shin splints. And I think because I was trying to, I was, I was forcing turnout. I think I was trying to grow too quickly without really having a solid pedagogical understanding of technique in mm-hmm. terms of ballet. Um, and I pushed through them because that's what I thought you'd do. And yeah. um, for about three years, I had really, really, really bad shin splints. Um, ended up getting stress fractures in one of them. And I recognized at a certain point in that process that I always felt like the mind controls the body, you know, and if I'm determined enough in my mind that I'm going to make this happen, that the body will always listen and respond. Mm -hmm. 
And I learned through that experience that the mind and the body are an interdependent relationship. And sometimes the body sends you signals that you are working ineffectively, that you need to do some more self-care or rest, or anatomically there's a dysfunction or mm -hmm. a hyper or hypomobility that you need to have more awareness of. And I wasn't listening to that. I was just pushing, 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 pushing. And so when I decided to stop, I just, I was in so much pain. Um, I was not getting a lot of work at the time and I didn't have a lot of money. And I was like, I'm, I'm not quite sure if I'm in this much pain and I'm not getting the work and I'm not making money. What am I doing this for? As much as I love it at the end of the day, like I need to, I need, I need, I need to make a living. Um, sure. I need health insurance, you know, like things like yeah. that, that I was just like, this is starting to get hard. So I ended up quitting. I moved to New York City. Um, I worked in window design and installations I was talking about. And I decided to go to the Columbia University School of General Studies, which is for non-traditional students, meaning that you've had a break either between high school and college, or you served in the military, or you've mm. left college and you've had other experiences in life and now you want to go back to college. And it's it's a school that kind of gives you the flexibility as someone who's usually older, has more experiences with the world um, or more professional experiences and how you bring that to your education. Mm -hmm. But I didn't go to Columbia to become a dancer. I actually went to get a good liberal arts education because I didn't know what I wanted to do anymore. Yeah. And I was thinking arts administration, ironically. I was like, let me get a good, <laughs> let me get a good BA get my liberal arts, you know, solid, make some connections, and then maybe I'll go towards an MBA or an MFA in arts administration. But combining the, my like love of the curating aesthetic experience yeah. as an artist, but also as someone who like, likes managing that. Yeah, that makes sense. And it was at Barnard College with the faculty there that I felt like I tapped back into the fact that I missed dancing and that I wasn't done. Mm -hmm. And I actually had something, I had, I, I had something left to give. Yeah. Was it hard to restart after so long? I don't know how long it was in between there. Um, was it, was it, about, it was about two years of okay. a break. Ballet was hard to start because I wanted to, I wanted to be careful um, and I wanted to move again, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to fall in love with dancing again and then have the same thing happen again where work yeah. wasn't coming in, no income, no insurance. So I was tentative. I was cautiously optimistic. Sure. And that's how I approached a lot of my dance training coming back was like, let's, what's today? Where am I at today? Let's be, yeah. you know, I'm having fun. Let's be, you know. And I remember, I remember my first class at the Paul Taylor School. I loved it. And I remember yeah. thinking to myself, I think this is it. Don't get excited. <laughs> Interesting, <laughs> like, yeah. Like caution. <laughs> caution. But yes, yes, you just you just feel like you felt like you were like a, all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I'm a fish in water. Like I'm fine. Like this, I think this is it. Mm -hmm. But let's let's have a slow bake with this. Let's like, you know, get to know the style, get to know the company, get to know the repertory before you go all in. Um, that's good and I think that experience in between probably helps with that attitude instead of just kind of diving in blindly to things you're able to kind of assess and yeah. have the patience to take it slow actually 
yeah, so it ended up working out. <laughs> Absolutely, it really did. Um, I read something interesting um, in another interview you did where you said that your experience has really taught you who you are and who you're not um, mm-hmm. as an artist. And that really struck me as kind of a young developing choreographer because I think that who you're not aspect of it can be really difficult um, in terms of defining your own creative voice, whether that's as an artistic director, as a choreographer, as a dancer, and accepting that you can't be everything at once because I think there is this pressure to do everything and be everything. Oh, yeah. And yeah, so I'm curious how you were able to get to that point. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's probably a long process. It was a long process. I remember... um, when I graduated from Columbia University, I was 27 at the time, and I was going to give my dance dream one more go. Like I was like, mm-hmm. I, I, I think I'm good enough to have a dance career. Let me go audition. And I remember going to all these auditions and trying to be the dancer that I thought they wanted to have. So uh, more contemporary versus more classical versus more jazz musical theater. And I tried to really, and this is part of the audition matrix is knowing your market, like knowing how to dress, how to perform, how to relate to people. Um, So what I'm about to say doesn't mean you don't know where you're auditioning and what that etiquette is. But Mm -hmm. I started to feel like when I was auditioning, I wasn't being true to myself, that I was kind of holding back and only showing like a fragment of who I was as an artist and I wasn't getting work. And I remember the last time I went, the, the, the Paul Taylor audition that I went to when I got hired, I had been through this consecutive string of just, and it was also 2008, 2009. So we were in the economic recession, companies were laying people off, no one was hiring. And I was still going to auditions. Like I need, I just graduated college. Oof. Like I, I need, I need income and no one was hiring or I was getting no. And I remember going to the Paul Taylor audition. I was walking down Grand Street on the Lower East Side of New York to get to the studios. And I remember thinking to myself, I, he's either going to buy what I'm selling or he's not. Mm. I can't, I, 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 I don't have the energy anymore to try to fit into some description that they have of me I'm just gonna I'm just this is it this is Michael Novak I'm still gonna dance like I'm still gonna learn the choreo I'm still gonna ask like I'm still gonna like give it my all but I think I gave myself permission to just dance it out and I got the job which was incredible and shocking and then even as I you know during my years performing with the Taylor company recognizing what other dancers in the company were incredibly skilled at and seeing them in their element. Like when we would get to something that was very dark or very funny and you're like, no one can do humor like they can do like, like that. Mm, Yeah. That's it. Everyone watch that. You know, like I got more comfortable with when I would shine and when I would be like, Oh, I, mm -hmm, this is when you call Michael Novak. Got it. But if you're, but if you're looking for something else, you're going to call these people don't mm-hmm. like, and being comfortable with that. Yeah. Um, and I think what makes the company so interesting in our history and also right now is the, the, the Taylor type is a really diverse type in terms of training, noticed. body mm-hmm. types, 
background. You know, Paul wasn't loyal to like only classically trained dancers. He brought in a lot of people from theater, some like some Graham. There's a big Graham contingency that, you know, has come in through the decades. Yeah. Um, classical dancers, older, fresh out of college, fresh out of high school. There's a loyalty to the person mm-hmm. and a spark that he sees, not necessarily what the training is. And I'm, I'm yeah. determined to keep that going forward because I think it makes the repertory very exciting to watch. Absolutely. Yeah, and it instills kind of this creative confidence in the dancers, even if they're not always the creators, you have this confidence in yourself bringing what you have. Yeah. It's beautiful. So as artistic director now, um, I mean, that just sounds like an incredible kind of journey to how that happened. You know, I've read several accounts of how it was just kind of a shocking decision, um, but also a really, everyone thought it felt really right um, at the time. And I read that it was really interesting. Um, Paul Taylor said that he admired your ability to nurture the past, present, and future of dance. and it's interesting, I think a lot of people maybe would be comfortable in one of those areas and specialize <laughs> in one of those areas, yeah. but that's quite a lot to balance, even if it is, yeah. you know, what it should be. Um, so how have you tried to find a balance of that so far? Between past, present, and future? Yeah, and incorporating I mean, that into the work. What I'm, my focus right now is there's a lot of conversations when, when a founder passes away, any institution that's, you know, has to cross that bridge all is is going through questions of what does it mean to be a legacy company quote unquote what do we do with our heritage what do we do with our ancestry like what does it mean going forward um there's phrases in the industry you know we don't want to become a museum company that somehow Mm. the past is different from the now yeah or different from the future and how do you how how do you marry both together? And that's something that some companies have done incredibly well. So my phrase that I think of is, it's not about preserving the past, it's about preserving the present. And what I mean by that is just because works have been created in the past doesn't mean that they should stay as is in the sense that you have dancers now who are performing them, who can bring their own flavor, their own individuality with their own stories you know, what, what is their take on it? What is their relationship to it? Or with audiences, you know, are there dances in our repertoire that haven't been seen, but for some reason are really poignant right now and can illuminate things about the human condition that never grow old, you know, loss, love, romance, betrayal, death, like these like life themes are throughout Paul's work. So all that material is rich for getting through every day of life. You know, the art is always there to reflect back. Um, So I think that's where I sit in terms of um, knowing the past and studying the past, Mm -hmm. but as, as a way to support the present so that we can build the future. Yeah. It's kind of how I think about it. And I'm figuring out what that means as we go from year to year. Certainly this year has been an incredible year in terms of going into archives, pulling out digital content, you know, Mm -hmm. from the vault, so to speak. How do you engage with an audience with a film from the 1970s or 1980s? What is that experience like for them? 
And how do you make it relevant to the now? Because it's not just a film anymore. Like we're in a pandemic, we can't see each other in person. So little things like chats, Q and A's, alumni commentary, original cast hosting the experience of watching the film, telling right. what to look for. Like there's all these little things that we can do with the past actually make it really exciting. That's never been right. done before. That makes it feel relevant and cool. Yeah, I think there's so much opportunity right now, especially for kind of re-resonance as we bring up these old pieces of work. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that's really beautiful. How has it been navigating with the company through COVID? It seems like you've been incredibly active with a lot of <laughs> online projects, video projects, all of yeah. this educational material. Um, what has that process been like from when it started? Were you kind of diving into it immediately or was there a bit of a kind of shift that happened? It's been, yes. It's been a lot of things um, and a lot of feelings along the way. I would say that we, when we first shut down um, March 13th um, of last year, we, we went right to education and um, what do we do for the students? And we focused on going to Instagram actually for the first couple months and offering Instagram classes for free to all, all um, ages and levels. And then once we knew that that model was working, we were connecting, the shift went from education, okay, good, you know, you, you, uh, you have gas in the tank, you know where you're going, great, now it's company-based. So mm -hmm. then I shifted focus to company um, to do virtual coaching, mentorship. We created a, our first teacher training program where the newer dancers in the company like went through how to teach a Taylor class and mm. how to pull from repertory as inspiration and worked with alumni who've been teaching for decades and we created those conversations. So it was much more on like company building and sustaining the, not just the morale, but the kinetic, like we're all moving together, yeah. we're on Zoom, but like company class on Zoom. And then as that shifted, we started looking, we were always looking at fundraising, but then as we kind of recognized that this pandemic was going to be going much longer than I think we anticipated, fundraising and development became kind of the next big hurdle in the sense of how do we create unique digital content that, engage our, that engages our base mm -hmm. in a way that gets them as connected to the Taylor family as possible without yeah. being in the same room. So then development kind of became that. So that like the fourth, that was the third. And then the fourth was getting the company back. Yeah. That was the big, that was the, that, that, that was the fall. We rehearsed in the fall for eight weeks in New York City um, under strict safety protocols. And we're back in rehearsals now, actually. We're still creating, uh, we're putting repertory together. All 16 dancers are getting their, you know, mm -hmm. their worlds back. Oh, um, amazing. So it's been this, what are the major hurdles? What's next? What are those hurdles? Okay, what's next? And through all of yeah, this wow. is, <laughs> is talking to presenters and theater owners around the country, all around the world, actually. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? What's working? When do you think we're gonna be able to be back? We're okay, we're gonna postpone this performance. We're gonna move it over here. Do you want something digital? Do you want virtual masterclasses? Like we're rewriting every system all at once. Yeah. So it's been, exciting it's been relentless it's been um informative actually about what this means for the future as well in terms of what we're going to take going forward 
Yeah. What do you think you've kind of learned on a personal level from it? I think I've learned that because we're a global touring company, we have audiences in a variety of markets around the world. And when we first shut down, I remember New York had shut down, but cases weren't high yet. But Italy, particularly Northern Italy, was very, very, very bad. And on Instagram, we had students in Italy reaching out to us on Instagram. And they were like, thank you for offering your classes. We miss the company. You're getting us through this pandemic. Like, and it was just, it was this kind of this, this, this list of messages that was really touching that the work we're doing is affecting students in other countries right now. And as the year progressed um, with our virtual summer intensive, for example, that we did, um, students from Japan, Australia, like started to tune in and from Chile and Argentina, Italy, we, we started to recognize that our global presence was actually still active. So one of the things I'm looking at right now is while we may not go back to China or Japan or Australia for another year or two, or it doesn't mean we can't engage with their students or their audiences. Um, and whereas before it was like, we'll, we'll get there when we get there. Whereas right now it's like, actually we have a responsibility now mm-hmm. to keep those global networks, not just sustained, but growing. And that's a very different approach to, programming and education than we had when we entered the pandemic interesting so it's almost like a global responsibility yeah rather than just the market you're going to be going to next Um, which is important too but what are we offering the world right now and our virtual benefit we actually had our first ever virtual benefit this past fall and we had 17 countries tune in for our virtual benefit and it just the, the wheels start turning yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's so much bigger to kind of try to tackle that, but it's really exciting too. And I think that's what's happening is just, we're realizing all these ways we can really connect internationally even more. Mm-hmm. It That kind of brings me to a larger question I wanted to ask is because, you know, you've worked as a performer, as a dancer, have you choreographed much? I was just curious, kind of. As a a very little, little bit. bit. I've choreographed enough to know that I don't want to choreograph. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Um, I've definitely dappled in it. I did it in college, you know, um, liked it, but not where I felt the call was coming from, you might say. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, that takes me on a different side note. What, where do you think the call was coming from? Because I really love that language of artistic calling. And I think within the dance world, there are all these kind of mini callings within the grand Mm -hmm. scope of dance. And so I'm wondering what kind of calls to you the loudest. I think the arts have a responsibility to support culture. And I think that artists are essential in cultural health. And mm-hmm. my calling really is how do we best position dance as an experience, not just the performance, but as the all of the elements that go into a performance, you know, buying the tickets, the restaurant you may go to beforehand, the emails you get, the social media you follow, the classes you take, the brochures that you're reading, the follow-up email you get at the end of the night after coming to the show, like all of that has a responsibility to not just protect a brand, but to protect and support culture. 
Mm. So for me, it was much, it's much bigger than just like being a dancer for me. Yeah. It was one of the things that as I was dancing a lot and I was incredibly blessed to, you know, dance incredible work. I was like, I'm, I've been taking care of myself and I've been working on my artistry and I'm grateful that I've had that opportunity, but I want to start, I want to do more for other people. Yeah. Not that your artistry doesn't help other people, but I was like, right. I, 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 I want to put my energy towards transforming other people's lives. Like mine was transformed when I saw Phantom of the Opera, you know, like, yes. like, <laughs> like what can we build that doesn't mm -hmm. exist right now that will start someone else's artistic journey. And that's kind of where my calling went. Mm, that's beautiful. And I think that makes so much sense with your interest in history and kind of bringing history forward to inform the present. That's really, it all ties together so well. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, what I was going to ask before is in terms of um, being an artistic director, do you feel that that's more of a creative process or is it more of a kind of curational process? I might have made up that word, but <laughs> it's it's a balance of it's a lot of management. And it's a lot of um, creative thinking, not necessarily mm -hmm. in the way I might have expected it to be. Um, because you're charting the future of an institution. So it's not just it's not just artistic decisions in terms of like costuming or casting. Like you have your artists, yes, but you have your board, you have your patrons, you have your audiences, you have your school, you have a cultural, medical, governmental situation that's influencing all of those factors. Yeah. Um, so it's it's almost like it's a your job is to synthesize all the stimuli to create what the next steps are and mm. that process is incredibly creative but it's different from what i expected it to be i think mm. um when i get to make a decision about like do you want this color pink or this color pink i get very excited because it's like oh great <laughs> you know it's just like it's in front of me i can see yes. it you very know, concrete. like it's very concrete versus like, where's the future? You know, and you're like, I've figured like it's it's a different conversation. So when we get to those little like truly artistic things, I'm excited. But mm -hmm. the creative mind that has to like pull all these different elements together and synthesize them so that we can get forward, especially right now, um, yeah. is very interesting. A lot of creative thinking. Yeah. That's so interesting. I think this is a very unique conversation because I feel like I often speak with artists that are really just kind of bringing their own personal artwork into the world. Um, and so it's this really kind of like internal out, but it seems like your work is really always the external and pulling the external together. And I think that's such a different process and a really, it takes a really different mindset. And I'm just, I'm fascinated by that. It's, an, it's, it's, one of the best pieces of advice I got when I first became artistic director was from a presenter who said, um, when you watch your company, like, like when you're out on, when you're out on tour, don't, don't watch your company, watch the audience, watch the work. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Cause of course I'm going to watch the work. I'm going to watch my dancers, you know, and like what sure. they're doing, how are they growing and stuff like that. And I was like, well, I'm going to start watching audiences now and watching how audiences react to things and when they react. And is it, is it, is it consistent across the globe that mm. body language or breathing or enthusiasm is the same? And that kind of opened my eyes to this sense of like, well, 
a dance that I may love to the end might not be right for a certain market. Mm-hmm. And watching the audience and knowing the audience and having those conversations with presenters about like, is your audience like, is it a musical theater driven audience? Are they more into like chamber music? Are, are, is there a great visual art scene there? You know, and then when they say like, oh, we do a lot of chamber music, you're like, I can put that program together for you. Right. I know exactly what we can do in the Taylor world to make that audience happy. It's the same thing as waiting on tables when you have someone who's like, you know, like, I don't like beef, but I'm looking for something like this. And you're like, duck, done, fabulous. Like, like, like you, you, you can like rule out things and then you find what's going to make their experience the best. So it's, mm. it, it, my voice is in there, but it's in the excitement of like marrying what we have and what they need. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, this is making me miss performance so much and having that <laughs> audience connection. <laughs> it really is just missing right now. Yeah. Um, I've, I've seen you use before in other interviews as well, this language of dance as healing. Um, and you had also said before, um, kind of the health of the cultural community. How do you see that moving forward? How do you think dance can help us heal kind of um, from this pandemic um, and just kind of maybe in general? I think in a I think dance does a couple things that help. And I think one of them is breath. And I think audiences breathe with dancers or they don't breathe with dancers, frankly. If there's if something really exciting is happening or there's a moment of suspense, like a thousand people can literally just eat. Yeah. Like the fact that there's that power for everyone to sync up in that moment. So I think breath is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and hearing bodies like existing and breathing together, especially in an environment where we haven't seen faces, we haven't been able to like hear breath. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think breath is incredibly important. And I think I'm really looking forward to warmth on stage. And I mean mm. like like tenderness, simplicity, love. I remember there was one, we were performing on tour and I don't remember what was happening politically at the time. At, at the time, it was several several years ago. And we went to a patron's house who was hosting the company and she got up to give her little um, reception toast. And what was happening in the country was, was devastating. And she said, I, I had forgotten what happiness looked like. Hmm. And she started crying. And wow. she said, and tonight, knowing that we're all on the same, you know, planet, we're all going through this and that you were able to go out on stage and you were able to share that with me and remind me of that, that it is there. She's like, that's one of the, that's, that's, that's the gift. And we're all crying, you know, <laughs> we're like, oh my God, you know, um, it's but, beautiful. but it's, it's, it's one of those moments is like we, especially in the Paul Taylor company, like we do humor and love and humanity like few companies can. And I think by us being able to be that, we're gonna give permission for people to actually feel and be reminded of those things again, in case they've been detached or there's so much happening in the world right now in terms of racial issues and social justice and where's the art scene going, where's politics, there's just this onslaught of anxiety inducing material and if we can come in and we can be like let's perform for you breathe (laughs) like let's 
let's connect in the human experience and let's feel things as a community together yeah. in person. I think that can be incredibly transformative. And I think every company is going to do that in their whatever branch of the family tree they are, you know, yes. everyone's going to do that and connect with audiences in that way. Yes. It, that reminds me of an article I read recently by um, an author, Adrienne Marie Brown. And she wrote this article called, um, I think it was titled something like, if you're good, say you're good. Um, and it was basically this idea, like you were saying, this time there's so much anxiety inducing kind of stimuli around us that it can almost be hard to say that you're doing well um, to bring that to the table. Yeah. But I think what you're saying in turn, I think that's what art can do. And of course, not that art is all kind of fluffy and light and lovable. Right. You know, it brings the darkness, but then it brings this kind of light and hope through it. Yeah. Um, at least Paul Taylor's work does. You and can't have the light without the dark, you know. Exactly. We, yeah. Exactly. But I think that idea of just kind of breathing through it together is really important to hold on to right now. Yeah. Yeah, even if virtually. Yeah, and I think even like, like touching something as yes. simple as seeing bodies like on mass, like not just two people, but like seeing like 16 people, you know, dancing together on stage, physically connecting is going to be emotional because we haven't been able to do that <laughs> yeah. in, in a year. Um, yeah. You know, we have, we have choreographers coming in to work with us right now. And they're, they're like, I haven't, I haven't been in a room with people in a year and I'm able yeah. to make work right now. Like, and it, something very, something very precious was taken away from us. And I think we all now value those in-person moments, the touch, the connection, you know, the, like the magic of the art form and, you know, Absolutely. and then, and then especially the magic of creating work, as you know, like when that muse comes in and you're like, that's what we're going to do. Like that experience is what, we live for mm -hmm. um, so getting that back you know yeah yeah in whatever way we can that's mm -hmm. important have you been doing much of your own dancing at the moment no <laughs> <laughs> um i have not and it's something that i need to get better at because <laughs> it's a lot speaking of synthesizing all those things together especially right now there's so much change and I do work out. I've been trying to meditate and things like that. But one of the things that I want to be better at as a, as a director is like still connecting with this body because that's how I express myself back in the beginning, you know, to bring it kind of yeah. full circle. Like dance was where my home was. It's what I know. It's what I'm familiar with. So Again, I don't want to choreograph, you know, I am starting to teach more now that things are kind of stabilizing a little bit, which is good, but I'm also like, I, I need to maybe like go and go and take class somewhere and just like yeah. go back to my jazz roots and, you know, just kind of be in the back corner and, you know, um, right. but connect to that part of myself. Yeah. I think it's so important to hold on to that from time to time when you, when you do have the, the ability to. Yeah. It's something I like to ask um, most people if it comes up. And, you know, we've been kind of talking about defining dance and defining the dance world um, during this time. But I'm curious of how your view is just kind of being an artist in general. Um, do you see yourself as an artist? Is that kind of a definition you attribute to yourself? I say creative. 
Hmm. more than I'd say artist. And I don't know why. It's actually, it's a really great question. I think when I think artist, I think of a specific like occupation or a track within art, whether it's visual art, music, dance, um, so many things, I mean, digital programming, gaming, yeah. I mean, fashion, I mean, you, like, the list goes on and on. And I think of that particular branch that you're, you're rooted in. And when I think of myself as a creative, I kind of think of myself as kind of all over the map. And in the sense mm -hmm. that I'm like, I'm looking at all of those things and how they come together. Interesting. Because um, I'm, not, I'm not a visual artist. I'm not a costume designer at all, but my job requires me to have an awareness of visual art and its history and mm. who's doing what and how, and how might that fit with this costume designer and I think that's kind of, it's a little bit matchmaking, you know, but like, it's this sense of like, who are these people that we can bring together? Um, mm. So I don't think that's an artistic process as much as it is a creative process. Yeah. Um, to create the space for then the artists to do yeah. their work. I like that. I, I think it's so personal to each person. Um, and I think that's really interesting. That creative kind of gives you more of that freedom and that openness. Yeah, I, I think it's just how you how you feel comfortable defining yourself. I think some people yeah. really like to define themselves as an artist, and some people it might feel too limiting. So that's really interesting. I think it's going to gonna change over time too, because I think yeah. my my relationship to this position, my relationship to you know being a dancer, being an artist now in this position, it's it's always evolving. Um, so I'm looking forward in like 20 years to answer that question. See if I, yeah. you know, what was I thinking? <laughs> right. <laughs> no. I know that's always um, how it is looking back. What was yeah. I thinking? What was I? But I think, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where my brain is at right now. Everything's cool. Everything's a creative synthesis mm -hmm. of bringing things together. So art can do its job. Amazing. Well, that leads kind of perfectly into a question I like to ask everyone near the end, which is um, what do you have any daily rituals that help enhance that creative part of your life? I, for a long, long time, um, I was doing the artist way and they have, mm. there's, um, it's a book that's like a workbook. It's like a 20 day kind of getting you to tap into your inner artist, speaking of artists. Yeah. And part of that process are what they call um, morning pages where you get up and you do like a stream of consciousness journaling. Um, and when I first, I started it before I was appointed and I continued it religiously the first year and a half. And I would say most of my ideas came out from that morning purge of like, mm. what do we do this, 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 what do we, how do we bring these things together? Like that kind of like subconscious word vomit, you might say yeah. like, but within that, and then I would go back and I would read it like months later and I'm like, wait a minute, that's actually, I had, a, I had not had my shot of espresso yet, which is something I do do. <laughs> I do like my morning coffee. Yes. Um, but that there are ideas in there. So that's something that's been really inspiring. And then frankly, this might sound silly. I love the Great British Baking Show. <gasps> Me too. And, I love it. Um, Nadia Bakes, you know, like, like, oh, like yes. I, I'm, I love going home at night and watching. <laughs> I love watching people learn and trying to create yeah. things and it's heartwarming. And like, yeah. you know, 
just generous about how they're trying and figuring things out and supporting each other. Um, so that's yeah. been kind of my like, I go home and watch the Great British Baking Show. I love that. I think that's so important to have something that's just really kind of comforting and yeah, brings you home. Yeah. That's and then you can try the recipes too. And then it, exactly. Do you bake? I have been baking a bit. Yes. Since Very nice. more, I've been doing a lot more cooking now. Um, I was studying wine actually extensively mm. before I got my appointment and I was like looking at like Somali stuff and like, is that something that I want? Like, cause like, you, you know, cause we could be, because we're a touring company around the world. There's so many countries we go to and like the wine is unbelievable. And it's like the whole cultural exchange through the culinary world yeah. um is great when you're part of a touring company so like knowing food knowing wine was becoming a way to actually learn more about other cultures when we when we would travel mm -hmm. so i am missing that as well i am missing the traveling and going to different regions and learning parts of different languages and stuff like that because that yeah. that also changes your that that changes you as well the more you travel oh. Absolutely. Yeah, I know that from experience. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Is there anything that's inspiring you currently? Maybe something that's kind of popping up in your consciousness that's inspiring for you? I'm actually really inspired by a lot of the artistic directors right now. Um, it's while so many dancers and artists are going through an incredibly difficult and confusing time, being on some of these calls with leaders and seeing the the true like what do we do to get back like like these conversations that are happening behind closed doors about what are you doing is it working how are people responding can we use this in california like present like there's this like there's this community coming together for the art form yeah it's really wonderful to see um and i'm hoping that 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 spirit of collaboration and sharing what's working and how our audience is responding. What are they connecting to? What are they not connecting to? Um, how are the dancers responding to being in the studio? We found this. Can where did you get that? Let's do that. There's so much. There's this like information superhighway happening, um, yeah. and that's been really helpful. Um, yeah. As we all start learning, what does reentry look like for our respective institutions, regardless of size? Um, there's Amazing. always things to take. To help yeah i i mean as a dancer and kind of freelancer that's just really wonderful to hear because it feels very supportive to know that kind of the institutions are really working together and really collaborating to to make that happen it's it's wonderful to yeah. hear we are it's it's relentless and it's 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 imagine. unknown you know it is an unknown yeah. or no one's done this before so that that spirit of like okay where this is this is zero for everyone what do we do going forward and how do we help amazing is there anything else you're working on currently that you would like to speak about or touch on? Um, speak about, not yet. We're working to get back to more theaters as soon as possible and keep creating digital content and engaging with people, so. Yes, yeah, I mean, we do what we can right now. It's not ideal, but at least it keeps us connected, truly. Yeah, so everyone should follow us on Instagram, yes. Facebook. <laughs> to stay up to date on things that I can't announce right now that may be announced in due course. Perfect. Well, I'll be sharing show note links to everything <laughs> so people can follow and find out about all these exciting projects coming up. Great. Thank you so Thank much, Michael. This Thank has been you. such a joy to speak with you. Thank you, Ruby. This was wonderful. 
For links to find out more about Michael and the Paul Taylor Dance Company, head over to the show notes at processpiece.com. You can also follow this podcast on Instagram or Facebook at processpiece and get these episodes delivered directly to your inbox along with a whole lot of extra inspiration by subscribing to my Sunday newsletter via rubyjosephine.com slash subscribe. If you've been enjoying Process Peace, I would so appreciate you choosing to support this podcast in any or all of three ways. One, leave a rating and review on iTunes. Two, share your favorite episode with a friend or on social media. And three, make a contribution or become a sustaining member at buymeacoffee.com slash rubyjoe. A huge thanks again to Michael for this insightful and wonderful conversation. Thank you to Cooper Lee Smith for creating the original music for this podcast. And a special thanks to you for listening. Thank you.